0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrevac from Avrio Institute.
1: And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research.
0: This week, we have Facebook going to battle yet again, this time with Australia, as Australia proposes a new law called the News Media and Digital Platforms Mandatory Bargaining Code. It's a law that, if passed, would require... Web platforms like Facebook or Google to pay news organizations when they share links or or share um, content content ultimately content. with respect to Google, if something from that news organization were to show up in search, then Google would need to pay for it with Facebook if someone were to share that uh, information in a post, presumably then somebody would need to pay for it uh, Facebook was strongly opposed to the potential law, uh, so much so that they decided to hit the uh, nuclear button and they blocked all news links in, in Facebook to uh, to send a message of how bad this law might be, or or at least make clear that Facebook had no intentions of paying anyone. So they uh, chose the alternative, which was to remove all the links from Facebook Australia
1: and facebook's argument being uh, that uh, the government of Australia simply does not understand the relationship between Facebook as a platform uh, and the news publishers and making the argument that um, the publishers actually have the better end of that arrangement as uh, Facebook sends you know millions or hundreds of has sent hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, to news organizations over over the course uh, of years, I believe.
0: It is interesting, just Facebook's approach with all of that. It it is, at least to me, comes across as you know, very central around Facebook's worldview. You should be thanking us, news organization. <laughs> <laughs> you should be so grateful. We've sent so many links your your direction. And as people share the, the news, then they come back to the source to read more about it and, and to follow up. And so they really try to make it seem like, one, that Facebook is the one that's doling out all of this, uh, you know, gratuity to all of these news organizations already just by the the nature of the product and that they shouldn't be forced to to pay. And I I think you also look at Facebook's battle with Apple over advertising and tracking. It, It does feel like Facebook is really trying to protect its revenue and its cost in a world where things for them are slowing down. Especially hmm. here in the U.S., we see things slowing down. And so to continue to, to grow revenue, uh, I think they're also very focused on the cost side of that equation.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good point, Sean. The, uh, the news battle is, of course, one about content. Uh, and the Apple battle is one about customers, Facebook customers, which tend to be small businesses that are looking to uh, target Uh, consumers. And um, obviously, they're interrelated, you can tell by the way, and this may be sort of the argument behind the argument that if uh, Facebook has to curtail the way that various uh, articles, news articles are shared around the platform, that is an important cue, uh, important insight into the interests uh, of that person and, of course, their political leanings and uh, you know, social beliefs and, and things like that.
0: The jury is still out whether this is actually a good law or not, but we do see that uh, Google seems to have taken a very different approach and they have offered to, uh, to pay uh, News Corp and, and others, presumably a multi-year deal uh, worth a significant sum to uh, allow search results and others to show information from these news publishers, so we have these uh, these companies going in what look like very different directions, as opposed to Facebook's move, which was to cut them off entirely.
1: And uh, you know, th- this is also typical. Uh, we- we've seen it in terms of the U.S. Uh, regulatory. Inquiries in into Facebook and Google how Google seems to uh, se- seems to be able to handle these kinds of inquiries with much less um, much less uh, extreme uh, reaction um, we've also seen it in the other uh, the, the other scenario we just talked about apple making changes to force uh, app developers to Reveal uh, how they how they track consumers, and of course, Google has several of the most popular applications on iOS, including Gmail and, and Google Maps, uh, and uh, you know just seems to be in a position to either accept it, at least for the short term, uh, and work behind the scenes to create new ways to uh, gather. Uh, in- intelligence on web visitors uh to uh, resolve identities which is a huge issue for uh for advertisers uh as opposed to you know getting um deep into this uh anti apple sentiment uh that we see with facebook and companies like um like uh, epic games which uh filed uh, antitrust uh, actions this uh this week with the European Commission as well you know part of that may be um it, it pays to be nice if uh the company uh that is causing you a little bit of pain is also paying you you know billions of dollars a year uh to uh to use your uh, or or rather is is you know your your you care about them enough to pay them billions of dollars a year to to use your uh, search engine as uh, as Google does, but um, but it just seems that uh, you know Google seems to do a better job of uh, managing these challenges in the marketplace without um, such uh, such extreme uh, reactions.
0: And and your note on Epic's filing antitrust lawsuit in Europe, I think, is indicative of something we've been talking for a long time about on the podcast. That a lot of this is playing outside of the U.S. Uh, Mm -hmm. We saw that France, Canada, and even European Union are exploring, potentially following Australia's lead here, and it really hasn't been a conversation, for the most part, in in the U.S. Uh, Antitrust enforcement seems to be much stricter, or at least there's a a much stronger willingness from especially the European Union to to find these companies, even if it is just... uh, amounts to a token amount for these companies, uh, given how much money they make. But uh, you do see them very active. Uh, and the U.S. has been slow. Now, the U.S. might be catching up soon, mm-hmm. but uh, it has been slow. And so you do see a lot of these playing out outside of the U.S. And I think that's an important thing to note because its not it doesn't get a lot of coverage as a result in the U.S. It, it's a passing coverage. But uh, I'm sure everybody who woke up to Facebook and Australia really felt this story of, uh, in a very first-hand way.
1: Well, but but unfortunately they couldn't read it on Facebook. <laughs> That's uh, right, because it was blocked.
0: So. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, and and I think again something else we've talked a lot about on the podcast is just the the uh, show of force that these companies have, how how they've become very large and very influential. Uh, we talked a lot about that following the the um, attack on the capital the rights mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the capital and the influence that these platforms were having and and here again I think you s- see it as well. And to your point, Google looks like it's it's choosing to uh to try to partner with these and to soften the blow as opposed to go to war with uh with everyone.
1: I'll uh, you know I just I'll add one caveat to that which is that you know even though google as the larger corporate entity uh seems to play a more reserved role if you break out youtube you know that that's clearly been uh, the focus for uh, a lot of you know in, at least as much of the um radicalization uh scrutiny as uh, as facebook has uh certainly arguably more than other facebook properties such as instagram so uh you know we youtube is is part of facebook but it's often not thought of as as part of facebook and it's only kind of like a quasi social network but but nonetheless uh it has also um uh had its challenges with uh with content
0: yeah and you mean youtube is part of google not uh, uh, google i'm facebook. sorry
1: yeah google right
0: Well, and and you noted how these companies in recent months, really in the last few years, have thrown up their hands saying, oh, it's so hard to uh, kill all this hate speech. And yet in a single day, they can kill all of the news links.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye, Australian news. We're turning that. that off. It's hit the big off. I'm picturing like this giant, you know, off switch on on a wall somewhere.
0: It's an easy button that's in...
1: uh... (laughs) Right, from the old Staples hat. That's right.
0: Uh, Zuckerberg has all these easy buttons
1: and they're all labeled with different countries underneath. Yeah, it's a matrix of countries and content. Yeah.
0: Uh, In in other news this week, we saw that uh, Chrome OS surpassed Mac OS for the first time ever. IDC is reporting... That uh, Chrome OS market share is now 10.8%, which is above Mac OS's market share, which did grow during the year, but is now at uh, 7.5%. Windows, of course, being the dominant, while they continue to lose share to these other operating systems, most notably to to Chrome OS, uh, they still commandeer 80.5% of the market.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's it's not surprising. I mean, clearly Chromebooks were the you know one of the breakout products of 2020 during the pandemic. Uh, they were inexpensive, they were functional. Uh, you know, even with a lot of supply shortages, uh, you know, obviously they have a lot of appeal to education. Uh, and earlier this week, uh, Google rolling out a an online uh, education event talking about all their various education initiatives, including um, Google Meet and what was formerly G Suite for Education, uh, Google Classroom, and they've, they've really developed an incredible franchise uh, of, uh, of integration here, uh, targeting many different tiers of, of uh, the education ecosystem, students, teachers, uh, administrators. Uh, I, I was very impressed by the degree of administrative control that they that they have and that they're adding uh, to uh, to a lot of these tools, uh, and uh, you know certainly uh, no uh, crying in the soup uh, for Apple because these uh, these Chromebooks uh, cost on average a fraction of of what a Mac would cost. Uh, I, I would estimate at least a quarter of the uh, average uh, selling price. Uh, and uh, Apple also you know has a more robust desktop business than uh, we we see on chrome os but uh but it is a um, uh, you know one one has to think that uh the where, where the real gains are being made are at the low end of the windows market, so clearly anything five hundred dollars or lower certainly three hundred dollars or lower. Uh, you know, that uh, Chrome is, is starting to really uh, eat heavily into that market. And there have been lots of rumors that Microsoft is preparing to respond. I mean, they've been talking about responding for a number of years now, uh, but with a new uh, lightweight operating system called uh, Windows 10X uh, that would uh, rely more heavily on the cloud. So their their real answer, first uh, tech, you know, real technical answer to uh, to Chrome OS,
0: and I think you see the you know the difference here with Google not taking such a, a strong hold of some of their platforms and their products, and just letting the market use them. Uh, we we definitely saw that with Chrome OS. I think we saw with Android as well. Uh, early on, Google did what they could to promote it as an operating system, but they they didn't charge a lot. They didn't really try to to take strong reins and, and control over how device manufacturers used it. They would come out on occasion you know themselves with a, a wonderful Android device to kind of highlight what what Android could be, but it was never clear whether they wanted to to really lead that category. They were just trying to build a reference device and I think they those decisions have paid very big dividends for them as Android has become a, a dominant uh, OS for the mobile phone and Chrome OS has become very dominant in in other categories. Uh, and, and Chrome OS I would argue was perfectly positioned for the pandemic. It was low mm-hmm, priced mm-hmm. at a time when we wanted to give every kid a device. And so e- even in the fourth quarter we saw close to 300% growth over the fourth quarter of, of 2019. So we enter, you know, 2021 with pretty strong momentum. Now Maybe some of that uh, starts to to slow down if we start to go back to school and and uh, you know and other things, but or go back into the classroom, I should say, because we have continued to to go to school. But the um, you know at the same time, I can remember years ago Bill Gates saying our vision is a tablet on every desk. So they, they really had a vision of getting computing products there and getting a one-to-one computer relationship and just never have really brought that to fruition.
1: Yeah. There was a lot of focus on this one computer for every child in this education uh, presentation that, uh, that took place this week. Um, I I would also say that uh, for Apple, you know, a lot, a lot of, Folks say you know they kind of abandoned the education market a, a long time ago. Uh, with the Mac, maybe uh, at least for students, uh, it is a you know professional, high-cost machine. A, a point that I brought up many times as we've been looking at the uh, the new M1 chip and the potential it might have had uh, to bring prices down, uh, which it did in a token way. Uh, but really what Apple has done is try to position the iPad uh, as the answer to Chromebooks uh, in these situations. It is a it's a different uh, proposition. You know, it, it has the the touch screen. It's slim. It's easy to protect it. Uh, it's simple to use. Uh, but, um, you know, for I, I think a lot of these school districts, uh, there's uh, a lot of concern about you know having that keyboard you know t- teaching typing is a is a real uh real important you know technical development skill to master uh probably at the grade school level these days uh and i think that's why they feel more comfortable with um uh with the clamshell and, and you know google has added a lot to chromebooks uh, over the past few years they've added android app compatibility they've added you you can now install full linux on a uh Chromebook. If you want to do some development, uh, Sean, to your point about Google coming out with these um, hero devices, uh, they haven't done so much of that lately. But third parties, uh, HP in particular, for example, have uh, have come out with far higher-end Chromebooks than uh, than we've seen in the past, uh, particularly targeting the enterprise. They're pushing hard there. So uh, even even Windows are running through um, through virtualization so um so they're really uh, they, you know they've really expanded the the proposition of of these products over the past few years
0: so Ross, does Chromebook get to uh twenty five percent market share before wow. That's you a know big jump where where do we see that on the horizon? Do we see it following that trajectory? do we see yeah. it you know classic innovator's dilemma do we see Chromebook moving up the value chain and moving into higher value products. Uh, you know, I think we argued before we started to record that the comparison to Mac OS really isn't a fair one. And you hit on some of those points that uh, the, the value proposition is arguably different. Certainly the price point is different. Sure. But does Chrome OS move up in that value chain?
1: Well, you know, so again, one, one of the things I saw in this uh, education event uh, was the... Uh, were were the efforts that they are putting on management um, and, you know, manage. you know, they're rolling out in some cases, uh, tens of thousands of of these devices to different school districts and providing, so they say, you know, effective tools to, to manage them. Um, So that's clearly something that uh, IT uh, managers uh, will, will be interested in. Uh, I, I do think you know there is a uh, you know Windows of course has long had the application range advantage, and I I don't see any evidence that that is going away uh, anytime soon. Uh, and uh, you know, but but I think it it does cause a dilemma for Microsoft because every time that they have tried coming out with a product called Windows that has had anything less than full compatibility it's uh it's not been successful uh so um you know look a lot has changed you, you can have a lot of fun tricks with virtualization uh well, you know but i would say I, I would i wouldn't be surprised to see chromebooks continue to eat into that share uh 25 would be a lot but yeah i i would agree with that
0: Uh, In other news this week, we saw that Amazon announced a new program called Build It. This is really built upon its uh, day one additions program that was a way of launching new products. The the way Build It works is they will uh, announce a product design, a concept really, and then they will open it up for pre-orders. And those pre-orders will, if they satisfy the the required pre-orders within 30 days, they'll build it and they'll charge you for it. You you essentially prepay for it, but you're only billed if you actually uh, receive the product, if it's built and shipped. And, uh, it, you know, it's a really interesting approach. It's a Kickstarter approach or an Indiegogo approach. And uh, I, I have always thought this makes a lot of sense when it comes to manufacturing because it's really hard to know what the market is might be for a new product and this is an easy way of testing the market you put out a a reference design essentially and then you uh, pre-sell it and you prototype yeah yeah and uh, i i think amazon is extremely well positioned for this for a a number of reasons Uh, obviously they've got the platform so they can promote it and it's a way of getting more alexa devices out there and just building out the uh, the the influence that uh, Alexa has.
1: Yeah, so Amazon is in a unique position to uh, offer a service like this. They have streamlined uh, a lot of the things around uh, Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter never really, or at least for many of its early years, embraced this idea of itself as a product development hub. Uh, And of course, its mantra was that Kickstarter is not a store. Right. Uh, So uh, that was their way of covering themselves uh, from liability, where if you pledged to have a product uh, produced and if for any of dozens of reasons it never got produced or never got delivered, uh, you know, you you couldn't you couldn't sue Kickstarter and, you know, you really weren't really couldn't sue the creators um, because there wasn't a a guarantee, or so they said. Um, you know, these, these things were rewards; they were not purchases. Uh, and you know, Amazon certainly is a store, <laughs> so it's a uh, it's a better proposition all around. Um, you know, the customer can feel comfortable that if uh, if if you know, as long as the project meets its target, uh, that they are going to get that product uh, and that it will be supported. Uh, by a you know world class uh, company um, you know it 'll be interesting to see if um, Amazon opens it to third parties you know you mentioned it 's an extension to their day one editions they 've also had programs where many Kickstarter graduates uh, have offered their products um, you know for uh, for early adopters uh, but in general that 's where a lot of these products have fallen down they have um you know if, if they've been well if the projects have been well executed they will deliver to their uh, backers uh and then they just kind of get crushed trying to take the next step uh in into retail just uh, just can't get that kind of momentum
0: amazon really is a logistics company and so this really fits within that purview of being a logistics company, and clearly by the time we are seeing the product, they've already priced out the oh sure the, the bomb the bill of materials. They know how much it's going to cost. They know how long it'll take. They've got suppliers lined up. They already have these relationships. So to your point of of having some assurance, they can deliver a lot of assurance. Whereas what tends to happen in an Indiegogo or Kickstarter world is somebody puts up a product, it's either underwhelmingly uh, you know successful and, and uh, dies a slow death or it's overwhelmingly successful and mm-hmm. then it, it <laughs> leaves these founders rushing to try to figure out right.
1: who are often inexperienced
0: yes ha- how know. to source it how to how to right. do all the the logistics for it and and then also where does it go after they've delivered to their early backers and that's that's been a big problem for a lot of products even the most successful products on these platforms have had a hard time developing a market after the the initial buzz. And so I, Amazon it you know isn't in the market of trying to hit home runs. They're quite content hitting uh, a lot of singles. They're quite content to just kind of continue day in day out. Every day is day 1. Let's just just you know make a little bit of progress and I think over time they want to have a lot of devices that connect to their their platform so i i think it makes a lot of sense i actually like some of the products i don't know yeah me
1: too i like that note printer
0: yeah the printer is actually a really really fun idea um i have a scale that i use i don't use it to measure my you know blueberry nutritional value (laughs) but i I do have a scale that i use in the kitchen and theirs is a lot nicer than mine so (laughs) so i was eyeing that but i did like the note taker and and you know that fits into my view of just a broader digitization of, of everything that's taking place, connecting and digitizing all of these things that were were once analog. I think Amazon really wants to do that. I think they see mm-hmm. some really interesting potential there. And we're, we're already talking to Amazon, to our, our Alexa devices in many of these settings to have it print off something makes a lot of sense. So I yep. think we're going to see more more from them on that front. Uh, That's probably a great place to end this week's episode. Thanks again so much for joining us. I am Sean Dubravac, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean dubravac.
1: And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks again for listening.